Morning, church. Why don't you stand on up? Let's worship.
from beginning until the end. You are faithful, faithful to the end. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to gather together in person. God, we also thank you for technology. Also be meeting at home. Um, God, I pray this morning, as we hear your word, I pray that you help it to pierce our hearts um, and to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, Renewal. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Adri. And I am Judith, and we are so glad that you are here with us today. Have you ever listened to a podcast and they suggest a kind of tip? Well, this week, one of the podcasts I was listening to suggested a beauty tip of cutting an Advil liquid gel and then putting the gel on your face to kind of diminish the looks of pimples. And unfortunately, that tip did not work for me at all. And I was extremely, extremely disappointed. But you know who is not disappointing and who is always faithful? God. He, he is, yes, yes, God is there for you, even when your zits do not want to go away. He is there for you. And so if you could, please just take out your phones, and we're going to go over a few announcements. Yeah, I will not try that when I get home later today, so thank you, Judith. <laughs> if you are new or new-ish to Renewal and you're wondering if you want to call Renewal home or maybe you just have some questions, we have an experience for you. It's called Next Steps, and today we're kicking off with week three. If you haven't been to week one or week two, it's okay. You can still come. We're ready for you. We have some free things to give you, and you'll get a chance to meet new people and ask some questions about Renewal. So we hope that you join us. It'll be right after the second service. Today's also a special day. We are starting our annual offering called Let There Be Light, and so you'll hear more about that later, but it's our way of spreading the gospel and spreading the message of hope of Jesus to those in Boston and meeting needs here in our city. So stay tuned as we share more about that offering. And in a moment, we're going to learn about the heart of generosity, but first I'm going to pray. If you could bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you've blessed us with your amazing presence. Please be with us as we go throughout our day, and I pray that you will allow us to apply the message to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. church. It is the second and final week when I can't be with you. I'm in New Hampshire filling in at a men's retreat for a friend who was in a car accident and he's okay, but he couldn't do the retreat. So he asked me to fill in last minute for him. I wish I was there with you, but the good news about that is that you have a special treat. You don't have to listen to my teaching today. Instead, you get a well-balanced diet. You actually get some good teaching in your life. My friend, Stephen Costello, he is the pastor of City on a Hill, Forest Hills, and he's filling in for you today. He is an excellent teacher, but even better than that, he's a godly man who loves his wife well, loves his community well. He's been a great friend to me, caring for me and my soul and my marriage and those kind of things. So I know he's going to be a blessing to you today. Please welcome to the stage, Pastor Stephen Costello.
Well, thank you for the, for the warm welcome. Uh, thank you, Jared. It's a joy and an honor to fill in for him today to be with you all. Um, you are like our, our sibling church. Um, City on a Hill Brookline uh, was the church that helped start Renewal, if you didn't know that, and they sent us a couple of months ago to start City on a Hill Forest Hills. And so it's, it's a joy to be here with you today. Um, a little bit about me. I'm, I'm married. I've been married for 15 years to my wife, Amy. I'm from Alabama. She's from Alaska. We can talk about that story later. Um, somewhere along the way, we had four kids, four daughters, and it has been a joy uh, to be a dad. Uh, and so uh, more than anything other than following Jesus, being a husband and father are the greatest joys of my life. And so this morning, we're going to look at the idea of work and money. You guys have been in a series about work, and when you work, it means money. If you're working and not getting money, you're doing something wrong. And so when it comes to work, we get paid. And so I want to share with you what Jesus says about money and generosity and what that says about our hearts, because the way that you view money also affects the way that you view work. God has given us vocation. Vocation is a good thing. Work is a good thing. It is something that God created before the fall, before sin entered the world, that we were called to cultivate the earth that God gave us. And so the way that we work uh, and the way we glorify God is, one, through doing good work. When we do good work, it glorifies God and it blesses others. But also, the resources that we get from work allow us to be a blessing to our neighbors, and the, and, the, and the part about money that Jesus talks about is centered in a teaching called the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is giving this vision for the type of world that he believes will lead to flourishing, the type of relationships that all of us are created for. And he, in the middle of this, he talks about money and what it says about our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is also about what the kingdom is going to look like, that Jesus said he had come to bring a kingdom, to bring a kingdom that would make everything in the world right. And in order to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. Jesus says that he wants to be the king over every area of our lives, that everything in our lives is being submitted to him as our Lord. So this means that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, applies to everything, and that in everything we do, including how we use and spend our money, we can glorify God, and if we live out the life that Jesus has called us to live, it will lead to flourishing. See, Jesus is not only king in the world, he is the king of our hearts. And he says, if you're going to live this way, if you're going to live the way that I'm calling you to live, it's going to take a certain type of righteousness or a way of living that emanates from a new heart. And so if you backed up in Matthew into chapter 5, Jesus has talked about the law and all these different ways um, that we're called to live in light of things like anger or, or lust or the words that we use or loving our enemies. And he says that you need to live in such a way that comes from this heart that's been made new that, that your outward actions match the state of your heart. And so as, as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is trying to do is help you see you really can't do this on your own. You need something to change inside of you. So if, if somehow you got through chapter 5, if you were reading this and figured out, you know what, I'm doing okay, I don't do too many of those things, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, I don't do bad things, in chapter 6, Jesus flips over to all the good things that you do for the wrong reasons. And one of those things is how you view and use money. You can do good things for the wrong reasons. Following Jesus is about more than just not doing bad things. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1 in Matthew, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. In other words, beware of doing good things for the wrong reasons. For then, if you do that in order to be seen, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
We can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus lays out three different ways that we do the right things, like giving to the poor, uh, prayer, and fasting, and says that you can do these things in a way that other people will look at you and think that you're a good person. You can do a good thing with the wrong motive. But today, we're going to zero in on Jesus and money. You can be generous. You can be really philanthropic. You can give a ton of your money to the church, to the city, to, to, to things that are important in order to make yourself look good. Every good deed that we do without God's glory in view is ultimately about ourselves. And this is why in the book of Romans, later in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says that our good deeds are like filthy rags. You can do the right things, good things, but deep down make them about us. Philosopher and writer C.S. Lewis wrote this beautiful poem called As the Ruin Falls, and he says about our intent, the intentions of our heart, he says, all this, all the things we do, is flashy rhetoric about loving you, talking about God. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all my friends, merely to serve my turn. But Jesus gives a different vision for how we use our resources. He says, because the gospel makes all things new, it makes us new, that gospel people are generous people for the right reasons. So how do we approach giving to others our generosity in a way that we do so with the right motives? Let's look at what it means to be truly generous. The first thing we see is that true generosity is shown in what you want from it. What do you want when you use your money and give it to others? What are you trying to get out of your money? In the ancient world, it was a common practice to give to the poor. And so there was this practice called giving of alms. And this was an expectation. If you look at the beginning of verse 2, it says, Thus, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. When you give to the needy, don't give like the hypocrites. Back then, there was no welfare system. There were no government programs. There was no, uh, no shelter on the corner. There was no, you know, uh, no food banks. There were, there were none of those programs in the city. So the community had to take responsibility for their people. They had to take responsibility for the poor in their lives. And this was an expectation. But what Jesus says is that there are two ways that you can approach this. You can approach it like the hypocrites, who it says um, would, do, would tr make, do trumpeting in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. You can do this in order that other people see. You, you imagine someone tooting their own horn. I think that's, this is where it comes from. They're trumpeting their own goodness. And what can happen, just like any good system, and this was a really good, well-thought-out system, is that we can corrupt it and make it about us. It became a status symbol. Because what would happen when they would give alms is they would have these, these brass horns right at the, in the front of the temple. And as we, when people would walk in, they would take their offering and they would throw it inside the brass horns. And what somebody would do, you've got to imagine, there, there's no, there are no dollar bills, nobody's dropping Benjamins. They're throwing coins. So imagine someone takes a big grip of coins and dumps them in a big metal horn. What's going to happen? Clang. I wish I had a bell right now or a gong. Like, Boom, like this loud sound of what's everybody going to do? Their heads are going to turn. They're going to whoa, somebody just gave a ton of money. The reward here is praise from others, and it's look at me. And we do the same thing. Jim Gilmore is, a, is an author and cultural expert who wrote for the Harvard Business Review several years ago, and he coined this new term called narcothropy. It takes narcissism and adds it to philanthropy. 
that we can give, we can give to good things, the right things, and do it and make it about us. And what we're doing when we do these things is we say, you know what, I value the right things. I give to the right causes. And it's a little bit like virtue signaling because what we say is we want others to see our goodness, but our heart doesn't really match it. And what Jesus says is that if you give like this, and this is what you seek, that's all you're going to get. If you seek approval from man, you're not going to get approval from God. In, in other words, you're getting your reward. You're getting what you really wanted. But Jesus says that when you give to the poor, don't give in a way that you trumpet your accomplishments. Do so in secret. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So does this mean that no one should ever know if you give money? This is a great principle for us to learn how we read the Scriptures. The Scripture, the best way to interpret it is that the Bible interprets the Bible. It's not that you have to go to an incredible lengths so that no one ever finds out, but don't be the one that's reading your own press clippings. If you look at Acts chapter 4, there's a man named Barnabas who was, was lauded and praised by others and because of his willingness to sell a field in order to give to the poor. So it's not the idea that no one can ever know, but don't be the one who's seeking your own glory. Make it about God and his glory and his reward. And when you give, he sees it. And so how you approach reward and how you, is really about how you approach God. Do you think of God more like a boss or do you think of God more like a father? I think many of us think of God like a boss. When you think of a boss, you know, you get hired into a job. You apply for a job. They hire you. Um, you do your job. They pay you a wage. If you do really well, they give you a bonus. If you do terribly, they fire you. There's no relationship. It's, it's, it's perfectly utilitarian. It's I do, therefore you give. But in God's family, you don't apply to be a part of a family. You're either born into a family or you're adopted into a family. And what's happened with us, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you have been chosen by God, adopted by grace into his family, and that fundamentally changes the way that you think of reward and generosity. So imagine my daughters, again, I have four of them, and they come and ask me for money. Okay, so really depending on what they're asking for is really depending on if I give them that money. But let's say that they come to me and they ask and say, Dad, can you please give me $10? I want to buy a gift for mom. I see their heart. I see their generosity, their willingness to love someone else, not just go buy candy from the corner store. They want to love their mom. And I'm moved in my heart because I love them to give them that good gift. Seeing their generosity, seeing their willingness. Now the question is this, is my daughter now $10 more my child? No. Relationship dictates the reward because now what's happening is they're not just getting a reward from their father, they're getting a re reward with their father. It's all about a grace-based relationship. So the issue here is not reward. We're wired for reward. But where are you looking for it from? From God or from others? Which motivates you? We, we live in a city, in fact, Boston's one of the most generous cities in the country. And what's going to separate our generosity from our neighbor's generosity is who's getting the credit and the glory for it. True generosity deflects glory away from us to God. And reward, we see, is an issue of the heart, and it's an issue of what you trust. Secondly, we see today that true generosity is seen in what you trust. We're going to jump over to verse 19 if you're following along in your Bible with me, because what you trust in is related to where you seek 
your reward. It says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Reward is always connected to what you trust. What you trust most is where you're going to look for reward. Because all of us as humans, we always do what we think will make us happy. Every choice you make is ultimately about your joy and happiness. You may not believe me, but it's either about your momentary happiness or your long-term happiness. So for example, I could go out right now and eat six Big Macs, right? But I'm not going to do that because I want to live to make 39, okay? I am choosing my long-term happiness over the fleeting momentary happiness of McDonald's. Some of you are like, gross. Whatever, hummus or whatever, whatever it is that you enjoy. Like, I could do that, but I'm choosing my long-term happiness, When we sin, we believe in that moment that is going to make us happier and we forget that God is our eternal joy. And the reason is is that we are hardwired for joy. We are hardwired for reward because God created us to enjoy Him. He created us to enjoy Him and we see this throughout the Bible because over 29 times the Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord or to find joy in the Lord. One great example, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Your heart is wired to find joy in God. That's why we find joy and reward in the world. But not just finding joy in God himself, but in rejoicing in God in everything you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're wired for it. We're wired to seek reward, which means that we're constantly trusting something or someone to give us that reward. We're looking for something to thrill our hearts and give us the desires of our hearts. And so that's why Jesus is giving us a warning here in verse 19. Don't lay up your treasures here on earth. Literally, the words treasure your treasures. Don't treasure your treasures here on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. This is a little weird for us because we don't think of this, but if you've ever had a cedar chest, that's why we have those, so that you don't you put precious things in there so that they don't become moths don't get to them. Back then there were no bank accounts. There, there were, you know, you, you didn't, you know, value your you know your money or your wealth and how many zeros were at the end of your paycheck. But it was all about possessions. It was about fine clothing or pottery or or stuff that had been passed down from several several generations that was so well made that it could last for centuries, but it could easily be destroyed if it wasn't taken care of properly. And what Jesus is saying is that if you lay up those treasures, the things that you treasure here on earth, they're going to fail you. They're going to let you down. And this is why Jesus is connecting this idea to verses 1 through 4, because he's saying, if you seek approval as your treasure here on earth, it will fade. It will not last. And he shows us how our generosity, or lack thereof, how this shows how money affects our souls. Money can blind you and make you think that it is ultimate. We see this in verses 22 and 23. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus pairs these verses together. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Money has a way to cause us to not be able to see rightly. Because it's really important for us to see, listen, you might be in the best shape of anybody that you know. You could go run an Ironman, do an Ironman competition right now. 
But if you were dropped off in the middle of a dark cave with no light, you're helpless. It doesn't matter how fit you are, if your eyes are unable to see what is before you, you're going to be unable to navigate the problems and troubles in your life. Money blinds us in this way. And in fact, there's a, it becomes a lesser type of light. In verse 23, but if your, light, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you, a lesser light is darkness, how great is the darkness? We live in a city. You know, here in Back Bay, if you were to go out at any time of night and look up, you're probably not going to be able to see the stars because we have these lesser lights, this glow that hums over our city. You're going to have to go outside the city to be able to look up and see the better, more beautiful light of God's creation. This is how money blinds us. Because most of us can probably say, if you, again, if you've read Matthew 5, you know what? I'm an angry person. I struggle with anger. Some of you might say, I struggle with lust. Some of you might even say, you know what, I use my words incorrectly. I really struggle to love my enemies. How many of us would say I'm a greedy person? Not, not too many of us. No one thinks they're greedy, but also no one thinks that they have enough. A recent study showed that only 5% of Americans believed that they were wealthy. And only 13% of millionaires believed that they were rich. None of, us, none of us believe we're greedy, but none of us believe that we have enough. There seems to be a disconnect. But Jesus gives us some diagnostics. Where do you trust? What do you trust in? Here's how to know if you're trusting your money over Jesus. Simply, how do you use your money? When you spend your money, what do you spend it on effortlessly and joyfully? It might be comfort. Maybe for you, it is, it's good food and it's good drink. It's just having stuff. Maybe it's experiences. Like you're like, man, I'm just so much looking forward to the next vacation, to, to entertainment, to the next experience. Maybe it's status. You spend a lot of money on your body or on clothing or having the newest thing so that you're always right on the cutting edge. And if we do those things effortlessly and joy, joyfully, it says something about our hearts. Or on the flip side, what about money makes your stomach hurt? What about money makes you agonize and worry and seek control? If you put your trust in things on earth, they will fail you. If it's money, there will never be enough. If it's your body, you will eventually, it will eventually break down. If it's your intellect, you'll find somebody smarter than you. If it's relationships, your self-image will go up and down based on what others think of you. But in verse 20, Jesus says that there's another way. There's something you can trust in that won't rust, that can't be destroyed, that can't be taken away from you. It's God's love and provision. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 tell us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is saying that you can trust in something so much better and so much greater that cannot be taken away. Now, here's the question. Do all your problems go away when you trust Jesus? No. Do, do your bills go away when you trust Jesus? No. But, they, but he helps us see the world rightly. He gives light to the whole body and he frees us so that money no longer controls us but that we can give generously out of what he has given us. 
Because what you trust is ultimately about what you love. Lastly, we see that true generosity reveals what you love. Verse 21 in this passage is the key to the entire idea of money in our hearts. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Trust is a matter of our heart's deepest desires. And so heart is not just feelings. You know, today, like we, when we listen to a song on Spotify, I was going to say the radio, but no one listens to the radio anymore. But when we listen to a song on Spotify, or if way back in the day when you were like in high school, somebody sent you a playlist or a CD or a mixtape if you're really old, um, and they, they send you, the, it talks about love and the feeling of the heart and the way that I feel when I'm around you. But the Bible has a different vision of the heart. The heart is not just your feelings, but it's really your heart is who you are. It's the center of your thoughts and your emotions and your will and your desires. And so trust says a lot about your heart because what your heart is longing for is to be okay. And what you trust in is what you believe will make you okay and it's what you love. Or as James K.A. Smith says, where we rest is a matter of what and how we love. See, money and generosity matter because they're about love. You may not think about that, but you know, money can't buy happiness, money can't buy love, but money does reveal what you love. What, what did Jesus say? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord with all your what? Heart. With all your being. With all your soul. With everything that you are. And then he said there's another like it. In other words, there's another that has the same intensity, that you should love people with that same wholeness. Love your neighbor as yourself. And inherently, there are going to be people around us who need us. Ask yourself this, do I consider how to love God and love others with my money? Is the primary purpose for which God has given me all the resources in my life to make them about me or to make it about others? Simply, am I a generous person? Because what you love will determine how you live. And so if we connect verse 21 to verse 24, we see that for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also because you're serving something. It says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two kings, because when the rubber meets the road, they're gonna, there's going to be a conflict, and which one is going to win out? At the end of the, of the day, one of those loyalties has to come to bear. So I'm a huge sports fan. I love baseball. Um, I grew up a massive baseball fan, um, and so, but when I moved to, to New England, I said, you know what? I'm going to just take on all New England sports allegiances. I'm going to be a Patriots fan. I'm going to be a Celtics fan. I'm going to be a Bruins fan. I'm getting into a hockey fight at some point in, in my tenure here. I'm going to be a, and I'm going to be a Red Sox fan. In fact, I'm actually serving as the chapel leader for the Red Sox. I'm enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. It's been a weird year doing that. But growing up, I was this huge Braves fan massive Atlanta Braves fan, because I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Like, we're driving distance to the stadium. I went to my first ball game at three. I loved Dale Murphy and Chipper Jones and, and that in, incredible pitching staff. I loved the Braves, but when I moved here, I had to make a conscious decision that I was going to pull for the Red Sox. But sometimes when the Red Sox and the Braves play, there's something in my soul that aches, because i got to decide which one is going to be the master over my baseball faith. Which one am I going to trust? Which one am I going to root for? 
when the rubber meets the road and these two things are in conflict, you have to love one and hate the other. And so, so for some of us, there's the temptation to just out, outright reject God and say, you know what, I'm going to go get mine, I'm going to get my money, I'm going to provide for myself, I'm going to worry about myself only, and it doesn't really matter what God says. But honestly, I don't think that's where most of us fall. Because the, the word hate in the Bible can also mean to love less. Not, not vitriolic hatred, but to just love less than. And for most of us, I don't think it's that we don't love God. I, I don't think it's that we don't want to serve God. But sometimes money can get you, and what it gets you, approval and security, it can get you in such a way that that actually begins to shape your heart. And it directs how you live. Because not only will one be master, but it will make the other serve it. If you attempt to have two masters, one will serve the other. And so if money is your master and king, what begins to happen is that you begin to shape God and you begin to shape his teachings in such a way that they don't really contradict how you view money. We begin to shape God and we ignore passages about being generous and giving to the poor and our lives not being our own in such a way that we're never challenged and we're never convicted when it comes to our generosity. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve Jesus and politics. You can't serve Jesus and sex. You can't serve Jesus in relationship. You can't serve Jesus in ambition. You can't serve Jesus in the desire to be in control. Because you'll always subject God and his word to that thing. Or Jesus can be king. He can be master. You can have a hope that will not fade and cannot be taken away that you can trust in, and, that you, and it gives light, and it shows you how to live in light of your money and your resources. So what can we take away from this as people who are trying to honor God with our money? Because Jesus gives us everything that we need. We can live radically generous lives that demonstrate the gospel. We can give sacrificially and deeply. Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he said in this book, he answers the question, what caused Christianity to rise in the middle of the Roman Empire? And he said one of the essential keys to that growth was radical and unbounded generosity. Their willingness to sacrifice in their own lives for the sake of others completely gripped the imagination of their neighbors. And so Stark said that the Emperor Julian, who was the emperor around 360, was so shocked by this, he said these words, the impious... In other words, irreverent people that we just do not like. These impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. What would it look like for us as Christians in our city to live such radically generous lives that it completely confounds our neighbors? It completely confounds our city officials who may look at us and say, you know what, I think you're impious. I don't like what you believe. I think what you believe is, is, is we just don't like, we don't agree with it, but yet you're so loving and you're so kind and you're so giving that I'm totally confused. What would it look like for us to do good work and consider that what I may need may be less than what I make and I can sacrifice for the sake of other people? So I want to challenge you with a couple of steps, a couple of things you can take away today. Firstly, examine how you view money. Maybe you need to look at your budget and you need to cut back, or maybe you've never had a budget before. There are people who would love to walk through that with you to help you pay down debt in order to be more generous. 
Secondly, give. Give joyfully, give sacrificially, give humbly, both here through the church to advance the mission of the gospel and then to your actual neighbors. And then lastly, let Jesus be king over your heart. Let him be king over your generosity because this idea of generosity is rooted in this. Jesus modeled it by giving everything for you. He left the riches of heaven, lived in poverty, died broke on a sinner's cross in order to redeem us that we can enjoy the riches of God. Have you trusted in that Jesus who's called you to himself by giving everything for you? Let us be generous people who image the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you gave everything for us through your son, that you withheld nothing in order to call us to yourself that you gave everything that we might be yours, that you generously and radically gave of yourself out of a deep heart of love to make all things new, to make us right, to re restore relationship with yourself. And so God, we pray that as we leave here today, we would be people so radically shaped by that gospel that we would live rightly in our world for the sake of others, thinking of our money and our resources and the way we work as an avenue by which to do good work but also to use those resources to bless our neighbors, to see them flourish. God, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. For sharing that message with us, for teaching us, and for sharing more of the word of God. We're going to give together in a bit, um, so go ahead and get ready for that. Um, today, after the second the second service, we are going to have our next steps experience right there in that room. So even if you haven't been to the last three, we are ready and waiting for you. And today starts our, our special offering called Let There Be Light. And we're going to see some videos from one of our partners and from Pastor Jared. My name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor of Kings Hill. And it's been an incredible year to see God sustain us and even grow us in the midst of a hard season. Uh, it's been amazing to see his faithfulness at work. I know that you guys can say the same thing. Today I have with us Allison. Allison, I remember the first time that you walked into our home. Uh, you had dinner with us, had all sorts of questions about what it means to follow God. I mean, now you're like, watching our girls for us. But, but tell us about this past year, what's happened. Yeah, uh, it's been a tough year, but also um, a real transformational year. I started coming to Kings Hill about a year ago, um, not really having any idea what it means to follow God or to be a Christian. And, um, you know, I was living for uh, a lot of worldly things. I was living for the validation of people. Um, and throughout coming to Kings Hill, God has uh, provided for me with community, with family, with church family, um, with just resources. Um, teaching me how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to truly live life um, through God. That's so exciting. And you're, you'll be getting baptized soon. Yes. Which is uh, 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 so encouraging. Allison, thanks for sharing it. Renewal, thank you for your love, your support, your prayers. Uh, it's amazing to see God at work in our city. Pastor Stephen Costello. I also want to thank him for recommending a new barber in Jamaica Plain. Check this out. Heather says, it makes me look like I'm from Jersey Shore. So sorry, Nicole, if that gives you flashbacks or something like that. <laughs> so listen, I want to talk to you all about Let There Be Light for just a minute. You know, 2020 has been a tough year financially for our church. And so, you know, there are some people kind of thinking that maybe at the end of our year, our year-end offering should focus on the church. But I just don't think so. 
I think if we choose to give generously outside of our walls, then we are inviting God to bless us and meet our needs. So we are we are foot on the gas pedal when it comes to our year-end offering. And this year, we have some very exciting projects and causes that we're supporting. We have Kelly Hurt, who is working with special needs orphans in Haiti. We have our missionaries who are working with refugees who arrive in Greece from Syria or from Iraq or from Northern Africa. We have, um, you just heard from Jonathan Mosley and that story of life change in his church and that young woman who's about to be baptized. And so every time you give to Let There Be Light, those kinds of stories are multiplied over and over again. Heather and I are going to give this year because uh, for us, part of it is we just love that feeling of being a part of what God's doing beyond these walls across the world. And we love knowing that God's going to just change so many lives with that. So here's how Let There Be Light works. Every dollar you give between now and December 31st counts towards Let There Be Light. You don't have to do a special designation. And then once just the, the expenses of the church are covered, just the budget is covered, then every dollar beyond that goes to, to meet needs and share the gospel around the world. And so every dollar you give makes a big difference. Our goal this year is scary. It is $75,000 raised between now and December 31st, and it's 100% participation. So we need you to help us hit that goal. And if you've never given a gift before, your gift in any amount helps us hit that 100% participation goal and gets us just a little bit closer. Maybe you can't give a big gift at the end of the year, but you say, you know what, each week I can give a little bit. I can text to give. I can do whatever it takes. So Heather and I are doing it. We want you to be a part of it too, because it's a great feeling to be a part of what God is doing, changing lives in Boston and around the world. All right, church, you're going to hear some more great stories of life change in the weeks to come, but thanks for being a part of Let There Be Light with me. Thank you. Um, so now we will uh, give. Uh, there are a few ways to give. We've made it really easy for you. You can download the Renewal Boston app. You can text that number to give. And remember that every amount that you give from now till December 31st will automatically go to the Let There Be Light campaign. Thank you so much again for joining us, and we hope to see you next week with Pastor Jared here in person while he will bring the thunder. So see you guys next week.